Good morning. How are we doing? Great to see you all this morning. Welcome to Fellowship. I want to just add my welcome as well. I'm Rob Sweet. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Fellowship Nashville, both Brentwood and Franklin. We have a team that teaches. I'm primarily in Franklin. Great to be with you all again this morning and this continuing journey of Abraham. You know, when Marty was up here earlier introducing himself, it never dawned on me how similar our names are. So I'd say this, I'm sweet, but he's a sweeter man. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. (laughs) It's always this like tension I'm feeling of like, do I say the pun or do I not say the pun? So I said the pun, but but, um, listen, it's it's a great day to be here. We are in a text that is explicit, sexually explicit text this morning. So I'm going to give you the same disclaimer we gave you last week. If you didn't get the memo, you may have young kids in here. Just read ahead real quick. Look ahead. You may decide, hey, this is one we want to check out online later today or tomorrow. We'll watch this online and, and take the kids out. That's up to you. But I do want to use this as a chance to say, if you didn't get a chance to listen to or watch Michael's message or you weren't here last week and you missed it, I would highly encourage you to do that. In fact, this is an opportunity where we're going to remind you where this is. And I'll tell you why we want to reference this in just a minute, but we have a picture of our website, the homepage of our website. Now, that's not the picture we're going for, but there's a picture of the website uh, they made put up, and uh, you'll see in the center there's a view latest message, and if you click on that, that will take you to the resource that you need to see Michael's message from last week, and uh, you can also see previous messages. Now, last week was the text on Sodom and Gomorrah, which obviously a very relevant passage to some some headlines recently in our day, and many of you have come up and said, hey, where do we, where, where, how can we get equipped to have these conversations that are both truthful and loving in our community in kind of the wake of the Supreme Court decision, et cetera? And there's a lot of conversation going out there, and we want, we, we want us as salt and light and believers of Jesus Christ to be engaging well in the conversation. Michael's message last week will help you with that. If you missed it, would encourage you to check it out. And then also Michael's website, which is michaelincontext.com, has some terrific resources as well on the same theme. So if you're looking for additional reading on this issue, and I, and I hope you are, that would be a great place to start, michaelincontext.com, some good resources that he points to. Well, this morning we're going to be in the second half of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. This is the end of the Lot story. Lot's been a significant character in the the Abraham story. And this is an interesting passage. And if you read ahead, you know, as I did, you know, well, I had to. I was going to preach a message on it. But but I thought, man, how in the world am I going to preach this passage this morning? And I'll be honest, you know, there's a lot of times mystery around who teaches when. So in other words, we're a team, right? So Michael... Lloyd, Bill, myself come up here from time to time. How do we select who teaches what passage? Well, it's actually a mysterious process. And this is that other picture that you already caught a glimpse of. Put that back on the screen. This is how we decide. (laughs) Now, let's be clear for a minute. That's my hand pulling that itty-bitty little straw. And that's Lloyd's hand. Ha, 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 holding it. Let's let the new guy... Pick, pick the, uh, the short straw. And that's how I got this passage. <laughs> uh, you know, in all seriousness, though, uh, I've been amazed as I've studied this passage how God has spoken to my own soul from this text that I thought I had nothing to do with. And so I want to encourage you to be open to that this morning. That's my prayer. 
Well, we want to jump in. I want to start by going back to the summary of the first half of the chapter, which was verse 29. Michael referenced last week. It's the summary of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Let's read it. Verse 29 of Genesis 19. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God remembered Abraham. And what's interesting about this story is Lot was reluctant to leave. Do you remember this? The angels actually had to pull him and his family out. And even on his way out, he's still trying to negotiate. He's trying, trying to strike a deal. And he says, hey, I don't really want to go far away to those hills and the mountains. Don't point me there. Can I just settle in, in another city? Can I settle in this little bitty town, this, this Zoar, this town of Zoar? In Hebrew, that means small. You got that wordplay working there. So the angels say, okay, we, we, you know, that city will not be destroyed. So you can go there. But the interesting thing that you're about to see is Lot has a change of heart about Zoar. Let's read in verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave. He and his two daughters. How far Lot has fallen he stayed in a cave now we don't know exactly why like why was he afraid of Zoar perhaps he realized that those people were wicked as well perhaps he didn't didn't trust God's word that God would spare that city but for whatever reason he became afraid even in the city that God told him he could go to so he flees up to the hills and we find him in a cave the section heading in my copy of God's Word in the NASB says, Lot is debased. If you look up the word debase in a dictionary, Webster defines it this way, to lower the value or reputation of someone or something, to make someone or something less respected. And already in verse 30, Lot has been debased. He's living in a cave This was a man who had flocks and herds and tents just like Abraham. When he left Abraham moving to Sodom, he began at the outskirts of the city. Then he moved into the city. He became a wealthy and prominent man in that city. We find him sitting at the gate of the city, which represents his position of authority and influence as a judge of that city. He had a house that he invites the angel visitors to where he entertains them. Contrast that with the tent of Abraham. So Abraham in a tent. I don't know about you, but if you've ever lived in a tent for me, if it's like more than one night, I'm ready to get back to the house, right? So there's that tent of Abraham. There's the house of Lot. He had done very well for himself and then he lost it all. And he escapes from Sodom with literally the clothes on his back and he loses everything. He even loses his own wife on the way out. And here we find him living in a cave. A cave is an interesting study in Scripture. Uh, I, I took the time this week to look up every time the word cave appears in the Old and New Testaments, and here's what I learned. It's always in one of two contexts. The first context is a cave is a place of hiding or desperation. When someone gets to the place where they have nowhere else to go and they're afraid for their lives and they're very desperate, they go to a cave. We see this with David when he's on the run from Saul. David hides in 
caves. And he writes some of his most desperate psalms, some of his cries for salvation. He's writing from a cave. Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets, they instruct the people that there will come a time when the judgment of the Lord will come and the wicked people will run and flee and have to hide in caves. It's a place of hiding, a place of desperation. There's another context where you find a cave. A cave is a place of death. It's a burial location in both the Old and New Testament. We will see as our story progresses in the coming months, Abraham will bury Sarah when she dies. He'll bury her in a cave, a piece of land that he purchases. By the way, the the only land that Abraham ever possesses in the promised land is the burial place of his wife, Sarah. And later when Abraham dies, he's buried next to her in that cave. When their son Isaac dies, he's buried in that cave. And then Isaac's son Jacob, when he dies, he says, bring me back from Egypt where he was living. I want to be buried with Abraham and Isaac in the cave in the promised land. A cave It's a place of hiding and desperation, and it's a place of death. It's a burial place. You do not want to be in a cave. Why didn't Lot flee to Abraham? You know, his uncle was disposed to love him. Remember, he rescued him earlier. He pleaded for him when he was pleading with God about Sodom. Surely he would have provided him sanctuary. Surely he would have restored that relationship. Why didn't Lot flee to Abraham? We don't know. I have a theory. You know, maybe, maybe Lot was too ashamed. Maybe he was too proud. But I believe in choosing the cave out of his fear... Lot was essentially choosing death over life. I don't think Lot wanted to start again. I think here was a man that had lost everything. He'd lost his position. He'd lost his reputation. He'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his house. He'd lost his community. He'd lost his city. He'd lost his wife. You imagine the state of mind that Lot is in. I think he's going to the cave essentially saying, I'm choosing the place of death and I will live out my days until my death comes. I don't want to start again. Now, it's one thing if he had made that decision just for himself, but he made that decision for his daughters too, didn't he? Let's read what happens with the daughters, verses 31 and 32. The firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. Now, the work that I want to do with you in these two verses is to point out the tension that these two verses hold. And what do I mean by that? At at first glance, the only place your mind typically goes is just sort of the depravity. It's just like, oh, you're kidding me. Like, they're going to do that? And, and, And honestly, that's where your mind should go. This was an immoral choice, an indecent and very sinful act that these two daughters did. And that's described in verses 32 and verse and following. But did you catch 31? 31 describes the plight that these daughters were in. And I want to say this. Their plight was real and their plight was legitimate. And I want to talk about that plight for a minute. And then we'll come back to the immoral choice that they made in 32 in following. Now, why were they in such a desperate situation? Well, it's because the societal structure at that time was centered around the house of the father. It was the Beit Av in Hebrew, the father's house. We talked about this several weeks ago at the beginning of the Abraham series. If you were a 
unmarried woman and you were living out of or apart from the house of your father, you had no way to provide for yourself. You had no protection against someone who may have an interest over you and and victimize you in some way, shape, or form. There was no safety nets. There was no government welfare system. There was no police force. You were as good as dead if you were outside of the Beit Av in that culture. So that's why these daughters of Lot followed their father. Remember, he had offered them to the the crowd, the angry mob that wanted to rape the angelic visitors, Lot said, here, take my virgin daughters and do whatever you want to them. Why did they stay with Lot? They must have had no other choice. They did have no other choice. And now here they are. Their father has chosen the place of death. Their father has chosen not to try to start a new life. But what about them? Right? They have a long life in front of them. Whose responsibility was it to provide for them, to ensure that they could have husbands and children and a future in that society? It was lots. And he had not made that choice for them. Remember, they actually had husbands on the way. They were betrothed in Sodom and they'd lost their fiancés because they wouldn't come with them. They didn't believe the judgment of God was coming. They mocked Lot, and so they were killed. And so they say, there's not a man on earth to come into us. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, right? There's no one on earth. Like, sounds like some single ladies I've met recently. There's nobody on earth, right? There's nobody that that can provide me a future and a hope that's going to be a good fit for me. And listen, this is an exaggeration, but it's actually an accurate description of their plight. They had no options. They had no access to eligible men. They had no way to assure for themselves a hope and a future. These daughters could not have felt protected and cared for by their father. And here they were wondering what happens to us now in this cave. Have we really been assigned to death along with the choice that our father is making? Their plight is real. Now, I don't bring all this up to say to excuse their choice. I just want you to feel the tension. I want you to feel the tension. These women were in a desperate place. Their need was real. They had no hope. They had no prospects. They had no future. And in that society, they were as good as dead. What are they going to do? However... That does not justify the immoral choice that they made. A couple of comments about the incest here. Obviously, it's sinful in God's eyes, but it would have also been looked down upon in the secular society at that time, which says something. If you remember last week, it was a corrupt society that they had been living in. The fact that the girls planned to get their father drunk is a demonstration that this was against Lot's will. They knew he would never agree to this plan. And so what did they do? They decided we're going to incapacitate our father and we will take advantage of him to ensure our own survival and our family line. It was an immoral scheme that included victimizing their father in order to preserve themselves. I hope it's not lost on you that these young ladies were raised in a city where the outcry of the victims of evil had been so loud in God's eyes that he had come to judge and destroy the city. And now there's a sense that this family had escaped from Sodom only to bring Sodom with them. 
Interestingly, the names of Lot's daughters are not recorded. Did you notice that? Uh, that stands out because this was a culture that was obsessed with ancestral history. Why would the narrator leave out the names of these daughters? I think he's making an indirect statement that just as Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out from the face of the earth, so the names of these two young ladies would be wiped out from history. The tension in 31 and 32 needs to be highlighted in this sense. Legitimate need, illegitimate plan to meet the need. And this is going to come back as we begin to apply this passage to our lives. These women were themselves victims, no question about it. But they victimized someone else in order to rescue themselves. Let's see what happens as the sad story unfolds. Verse 33 So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The sad picture we have of Lot here is a man in such a drunken stupor that he has no conscious awareness or memory of what his daughters had done. There's no question he's the victim. There's no question he's being victimized, but it's a little hard to feel sorry for Lot under the circumstances. This is the point in Lot's life where his passivity finds its ultimate, complete end. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, writes it this way. Lot, who would offer his daughters to be known by gang rapists, now does not know his daughters even as he impregnates them. Gordon Wenham writes, We are just left to pity Lot in his last and most painful loss of honor at the hands of those who should have loved him most. The lowering or debasing of Lot is complete and it is extreme. And the sad part is this is the end of the Lot story. There's not a happy ending to Lot's life. We don't hear about him waking up and realizing I can go back to Abraham and get back under covenant relationship with God and start afresh. There's none of that in the story. Lot's story ends at this place. There's an important postscript about those two babies. I want to read that in 3738, and we'll talk about it. The firstborn daughter bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Moab sounds very much like the Hebrew phrase, from our father. Ben-Ami means son of my people. Now, this would have been an aha moment for the original audience, right? These were Hebrew people that had heard these stories, and it would have just clicked at this point in their, their own learning. Oh, from our father. You mean that the Moabite group? They're literally, literally from the father. Oh, wow. And the Ammonites? Now, guess what? Here's the application for them, and, and this provides our first application this morning for us too. 
by the time this story was written down you know, in the book of Genesis, as Genesis was recorded, the Moabites and the Ammonites had become a thorn in the side of the Hebrew people. So when the Hebrew people learned, oh, that's where those people came from, it would have been this realization of, you mean hundreds of years of adversity and animosity and, and them be attacking us and being enemies of us and trying to draw us away from God? Hundreds of years of that goes back to this seemingly private, personal sin hidden in the cave. Well, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that even so-called hidden or personal or private sin can have long-term and devastating consequences. And don't we know that to be true, but don't we need the reminder, right? And I would say men and women who are following Jesus Christ, even forgiven sin. Now, you know, the, the eternal consequence of your sin has been taken away through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But there are natural consequences of even small, private, personal, hidden sins. And the reason for that is every time I sin, every time you sin, what we're essentially saying is, God, I don't believe you actually know what's best for me. I'm going to do something outside of your will, outside of your plan, because I think I'm smart enough to dictate my own future. And the consequences are inevitable, and they're often long-term, they're often devastating that's kind of lesson number one we're reminded of in this by the way and i'm glad i get to say this next part of the text as dark as this text is there's a redemptive thread in it and and here's here's how that plays out you see moab goes on to have children and then children and grandchildren great-grandchildren great-great-great-grandchildren they become this people group the moabites well guess who moab's great-great-great-great-great great, you know, so many greats, granddaughter was. Anyone know? Ruth. Yeah, Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite. Now, let me make this connection to you. Ruth is living in the land of Moab. She's, you know, betrothed. She's going to marry this man. Sounds familiar. He dies, right? Sounds familiar. She's in a desperate place. What does she decide to do? She decides to go back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Naomi's homeland, which happened to be the place of God, the people of God, right? Your people will be my people. Your, your God will be my God. Remember that line? So Ruth goes back, and guess what happens? She meets a Savior in the land of God with the people of God, a man named Boaz, the kinsman redeemer of the family. Booth, Booth. <laughs> Boaz rescues Ruth. They get married. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a lot of sons. Who's the littlest one? Who's the runt of the, of the lot? David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are getting it. David, King David. Who comes from the line of David? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now, when I think about this, this is another example of God taking a terrible sin. And this is what God does right? He takes your mess. He takes my mess. He takes your worst moments in life, my worst moments of life, and through his weaving, through his thread of redemption, he turns our ashes into something beautiful. That's what he'll do. Now, it doesn't diminish the long-term and devastating consequences. Those are real too, but there's hope in this. There's hope of salvation, even this, this immoral, terrible act. Now, 
We've already pulled out one application, right? Even personal private sins can have long-term devastating consequences. I want to pull out one more. And, and I'm, I'm trying to save time for this because this is the application that's hit me. And, and every sermon, I've gone over on my time. And I'm like, I can't, I can't cut any of this out because this is so rich for me this week. And I think it can be so rich for you this week. I want to pull out this other application. And it's linked to the contrast that we see in this story between Lot, his choices, his legacy, and Abraham, his choices, his legacy. And I think this was the big idea of this passage. Because remember, this is the final word about Lot's life. So when you realize that, you automatically go back, and the Hebrews would have done the same thing. They would have gone back. Let's examine Lot's life. What's the epitaph of of Lot's life? What would we write on his tombstone? How would you summarize this man's Life, And I think that this is the big idea, big idea number two for the Hebrew people that will apply to us. And it would sound something like this to the Hebrew people. Lot's life represents the results or the fruit of living outside of the covenant with Yahweh. So in essence, Lot's life was a foil for Abraham. Abraham lived by faith. Lot lived by sight. Abraham lived in close communion with God. Lot lived in close communion with wicked people. Abraham lived inside the covenant. Lot lived outside the covenant. Abraham lived under God's authority. Lot lived primarily apart from God's authority. And you look at the fruit. So here's what had been going through the minds of the original readers. Lot's legacy illustrates a life lived outside of covenant relationship with God and the fruit it produces. We are not descendants of Lot, right? We are descendants of Abraham. So let's not live like Lot. Let's not live like that man. Let's live like our forefather who was faithful in covenant relationship with God. Was Abraham perfect? No, we're going to see that again next week. He's going to fall flat on his face again next week. But he stayed in covenant relationship with God. This was the message for the Hebrew people. Simplify it to say this. Living outside of the covenant is death. Living inside of the covenant is life and flourishing. That's the message of Lot's life. But I think it goes deeper. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. Do you remember Proverbs 14 verse 12? There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Isn't Lot's life a really good illustration of that? Do you remember in chapter 13 when Abraham allowed Lot to choose whatever looked good to him, the land? Like, remember chapter 13, Abraham and Lot are out there, so we've got to split up. Abraham says, even though you're younger, I'm going to give you the choice, whatever land you want. This is the moment where Lot said, this is the way that seems right to this man. And now we're seeing the fruit of death on the other side. But I want to go back and talk about that choice. Listen to this. Genesis 13, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Why did Lot choose the fertile valley? Because it was fertile. (laughs) 
Because it looked good to him. Because it was like the garden of the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Rob's going to say that we shouldn't choose the good stuff, right? That when our eyes desire something that looks good to us, it's usually going to lead to destruction. No. No. That's not the message of the passage. You see, the land that Lot chose looked to him like the garden of the Lord. The garden of the Lord. Who wouldn't choose the garden of the Lord? I would, you would. We were made for the garden. You see, we were designed to be drawn to the garden of the Lord, and that's a good desire. You want to flourish, I want to flourish. You want to have life for all of its fullness. You want to have good, healthy relationships. You want to be comforted. You want to be cared for. You want to be provided for. I want all those same things too. Lot wanted all those same things too. Of course, he wanted the area that was like the garden of the Lord. The garden represents fullness of life, vitality, comfort, provision, lacking nothing, the truly good life. Doesn't God want that for us? Remember God's intention for creation like his original intent his final intent so genesis 1 and 2 revelation 21 22 god's intention for creation is the people of god living in the place of god with full access to the presence of god lot sees a place that looks like the place of god the garden of the lord now listen The problem wasn't the lushness of the land. The problem were the neighbors, right? This was a land possessed by people purposefully determined to live their own way, openly opposed to the Creator's sovereignty over them. So you might think of it this way. So Lot, in making this decision, in order to grasp onto what his eyes and his heart desired, not wrong desires, by the way, men and women, God-given desires, the garden of the Lord. In order to grasp onto that, though, he moved away from the people of God and the presence of God and toward a group of people who had no interest in God. This was the choice that he made. Now, here's how I'd summarize this. And if I could put one thing on Lot's tombstone, this is what I would write. Lot thought he could have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. This is the message for us. This is the message for the Hebrew people. Same lesson, same application for us. You can never have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. It's okay to desire things. God put that in you, right? God put in you the desire to to have a future, to have a hope. He put you in you the desire to be intimately connected to other people. He put in you the desire to even be known and to know sexually another human being in a way that just goes all the way down to the core of your soul. He put all those desires in you. It's part of what was given to Adam and Eve in the garden that we've lost and men and women ever since we have lost paradise. We've been trying to get back to the garden it's because we're designed that way we're wired for that the garden is what we want and long for and that is not a bad thing the problem with these two daughters is they sought their legitimate need of a future and a hope and flourishing they sought that legitimate need in an illegitimate way this is what i do you know this is where this text just sort of took new meaning for me this week. 
This is my story. This is your story too. How do I know that? Because you're a sinner. <laughs> and and I, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And that's what sinners do. We try to seek legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. That's not a bad definition of sin, by the way. Now, the problem with Lot's daughters is not that they, 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 they shouldn't have wanted something more for themselves. Right? And even their fear and their desperation, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, the choice that they made. Now, let's talk about sexual sin for just a minute because that's obviously what this passage is about. Can we just get real about this topic? And that's what we've been trying to do the last couple of weeks. Men and women, we're all in some way, shape, or form broken sexually. We're all broken sexually. It's a part of the fall. It's a part of not being in the garden anymore. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. All right, you've got broken pieces. I've got broken pieces in me related to our sexuality going back to Genesis chapter 3. What you long for and what I long for is someone to know me and accept me and love me and want me in the deepest part of my soul. And that's ultimately what sexual relationships are designed to be all about. That's the legitimate need, men and women. It's there. Can we just own that we want that, that we need that? And of course, the problem comes when we feel that in our hearts. And even if we're not conscious to the real need, we just know we have a need, we have a desire. So we live in a fantasy world where we imagine that that is true because we don't have that right now. Or we get involved in another relationship, in an illicit relationship. And you see what's happening, and I'll even relate this, if I, if I can just say this. I think this is what's happening with the same-sex argument right now. We need to listen well to the heart behind the stories of these men and women that have same-sex attraction. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. What they're essentially saying is, is it wrong for me to want to be known and to know someone at the deepest part of my core? Is that wrong? And the answer is, no, it's not wrong. And you can say, I have the same need. And they'd say, well, yeah, but it's okay for you because you're married. Do you think my marriage, do you think my sex life reaches the deepest part of my core soul all the time? Do you not think that that I want to go outside of God's plan for me to sort of meet that desire that he put there? Do you not think I struggle with that too? I struggle with that too. Do Do you see this, men and women? My sexual sin, your sexual sin, whatever it is, it goes back to this core need that we're, is real, it's legitimate, we're trying to meet it in an illegitimate way. We are the daughters of Lot. Here's my question. Could those women have made a different choice? Could they have made a different choice? They didn't think they had another option. Right? As far as they saw in their minds, this is it. It's either this or death. What if they'd cried out to the God of their father, Lot, and the God of their father, of their uncle, Abraham? And what if they'd even said, we don't really know that much about you. We've been living in this evil land, but we've heard stories. If the stories are true, would you show up? Would you do a miracle? Would you rescue us? I want to close by fast-forwarding in biblical history 
to two different sisters in a very similar predicament. In fact, they were even standing in front of a cave, a different cave. These two sisters had a plight that was also very real. You see, they just lost their brother, and he was their provision. He was their protection. In that society, he was that father's house that they were attached to, and now he was gone. What were they going to do? In fact, they buried him in the place of death in a cave. And like Lot's daughters, they stood near the cave, grief-stricken and afraid. But they made a different choice. They took a different path. These two sisters cried out to the Lord for salvation, for a miracle. And Jesus came. And he met them. He wept with them. He stood outside the cave with them. And then he said these words to the sisters. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And then he did a miracle. Lazarus came out. You see, there's another choice. We have another choice. Now, what would that look like for you? I think it looks like this. When you're in that place, and we all get there, where you're just like, I long for something I don't have. God, don't you desire this for me? Would you look up and would you say, Jesus, would you be with me in my pain? Would you be with me in my heartache, in my anguish, in my struggle? And would you do a miracle? Would you do a miracle? Now, I don't know that you're going to get the same kind of miracle that Mary and Martha got with their brother. It doesn't always work like that, right? Jesus didn't do that for everybody. That was his plan for them. Here's what I can tell you. You will see the glory of God if you believe. In other words, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you cry out to him, you will see the glory of God. This is the same thing he said to Mary and Martha. Did I not say if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You're longing for fullness. You're longing for relational connection. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're tired. You're lonely. You're seeking the garden. And Jesus says, believe and you will see the garden. You will see it. You will taste it. It may not be on your time frame. I'll go so far as to say it may not be this side of death. But you wouldn't be the first. Abraham never got the land he was promised this side of death. This is how we're called to live, men and women, as followers of Jesus, as we hold this tension in our hearts. I long for the garden. The garden is not here. It will one day be restored. In the meantime, let me be a faithful pilgrim. Let me just taste glimpses of the goodness of the Lord. And there are many glimpses of the goodness of the Lord. There are joys in this life. But the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate all things made new, is ahead of us. And in some sense, it always will be ahead of us until the day that Jesus shows up outside the place of death, outside our caves. And he says, come forth. Come forth. 
Our application this morning is a prayer. I want to pray this prayer for you. I want to pray this prayer for me. It's a bold prayer. It's a prayer I would invite you to join me in if God gives you the faith to pray this prayer. It's a prayer that's essentially going to say, God, I want to believe you and trust you enough to be able to hold this tension that I won't go after illegitimate ways to meet legitimate needs. I will wait for you however long that takes, whatever that means for this life. That's a bold prayer. If you can't join me in this prayer, I will be praying it on your behalf. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Father, you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know our longings. You put them there, you made them there. My prayer for me and my prayer for every man and woman, young man, young woman, those who are in the room, those who are watching online, my prayer is that would you would give us the faith to trust you enough to say something like this, Father, I will not go outside of relationship with you to seek the things that I desire. I will wait for you to provide for me according to your portion, according to your timing. I will submit myself to your authority because I believe that you see me and I believe that you love me and I believe that you desire for me to flourish and through Jesus Christ and my faith in Christ, I exist now in covenant relationship with you and that you can smile when you think of me. Help me to wait. Help me to hold back. Help me to grieve knowing you grieve with me. Help me to be faithful to believe that there will be a day that the promise will be reality. And help me to walk this pilgrim between, pilgrimage between now and then well. It's only in the name of Jesus Christ that we can pray. And we do pray in his name. Amen. Amen.